0: chapter 6. Ecclesiastes 6. There have been Christians who thought that to enjoy life was a sin. We call them the monks of the church of Rome. A monastic view of life. If you really want to serve the Lord, then you've got to be a monk and go live in some dreary castle someplace without a wife. And eat the poorest substance possible. After you have taken a vow of celibacy, I'll never have a wife. And a a vow of poverty, I'll never own anything. Terrible. Some have an idea that the Puritans were like that. And some may have been like that. And when you read some of them, some of them tend in that direction. But they were less so than many people think. There is not evil in enjoying the good things that God has given us. When I was a young man, I was taught many very good things about financial prudence and saving. (laughs) My brother and I were taught that of every dollar you took in, the first 10% went to the Lord. That was great. The next 80% went to savings, and we got 10. And we learned to think that way. And we were content that way. When I was about 19, a man that I respect in some areas of life taught me that I ought to live on half my income. And so, with three children, and just starting up through the bank, I lived on half my income. Savings does accumulate. Accumulate. But because you don't have a reward for your labor, I would freak out. I was as utilitarian as they come in the use of money. And then I would freak out. My wife remembers in the early days in Ann Arbor, Michigan, freaking out and needing to go buy something. I said, get in the car on a Friday night. Get in the car. We never, went, we never ate out didn't know what it was. I said, get in the car. We're going to go buy something. I went to an appliance store. I walked through there. I said, I want the best. I want the best. What's the biggest and the best freezer you have? Well, it is this 23-cubic-foot Amana freezer built by the, the Amish or the, the uh, city of Amana up north. So I bought something. And it was relief to get that freezer home but I couldn't afford a single thing to put in it, and God is my witness, it was full of milk milk jugs full of water to have something to freeze in my freezer. That is an evil disease. (laughs) That is an evil disease. I had a 23 cubic foot of freezer, and I had nothing to put in it. All it took was for me to check the prices of what it would take to put stuff in there that needs to be frozen. You know, the stuff we... (laughs) The Lord is merciful. I remember remember a few years later, I was now in Troy, Michigan, working for Michigan National Bank. Freaked out on a Friday. Get Get in the car. Drove to an appliance store in a suburb of Detroit. The best television you could buy in America at that time was Curtis Mathis. I said, I want the biggest Curtis Mathis television you've got. Show it to me. It was a console 20 feet long. Bob Beeman couldn't long jump it. I bought it. I went home. The frugalitis that I'd been trained with said, call them and cancel the order. I called and canceled the order. It was an evil disease. I was living so tight to get ahead that I would freak out. My wife remembers one time I worked 24 or 36 hours straight for them on some project at the bank, and they said, we want you to take your wife and go out on the town on us because of the extra you've put in. I was getting paid for what I did, but they said, we want you to go out and enjoy something with your wife for the extra effort you made. I went to a restaurant in, in Michigan that was called Bill Knapp's. Its, it's, it's comparable restaurant here is Perkins. Okay? Oh, oh. I walked back in and I gave them my receipt. <coughs> what? You took your wife to Bill Knapp's? Yeah. We had a good time. Did you? Yeah, we, we did. <laughs> but I'll tell you the next time I didn't go to Bill Knapp's. Right. They, they said, young man, sit down. When we tell you to go out in the town, we do not mean Bill Knapp's. And believe you me, we didn't go to Bill Knapp's the next time. We went someplace I couldn't pronounce the menu. It was terrible. But we ran up one tab, and that's what they wanted us to do. I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know know about eating out. Listen, when you eat out, do you look at the right-hand column or the left-hand column? That'll tell you whether you've got the evil disease or not. If you look at the right-hand column, you're... You're measuring everything by price. You should be looking at the left-hand column and seeing what's good and what would, what would give you pleasure and good to your soul. Right. Some of a generation that came before me came out of the Depression. They came from poor parts of the country. Right. Do you know that our nation has been blessed in the last 40 years like it has never been blessed? Amen. Trust the Lord. Who would have thought this in the 60s that America was going to prosper for 40 years? And it has. So I understand that from a generation that did not have extra. And we want to remember that. But as the Lord blesses you, like Ecclesiastes 5.19, we want to use it. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. The paragraph marks in my Oxford King James Bible are so bad in this chapter. I have a paragraph mark at verse 6. Verse 6 goes with 3 through 5. What, they put a new paragraph mark for at 6? Those paragraph marks aren't inspired. They stuck those in just a few hundred years ago. Anyway, verses 7 through 9. There shouldn't be one at 9 either. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. For what hath the wise more than the fool? What hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. We are finally to a new lesson. From chapter 5:13 to 6, 6, we have had a lesson about being miserly, stingy, too tight, too conservative... Saving too much not enjoying life the way that you should now we have a new lesson and the lesson is contentment The lesson is contentment and it starts in verse 7 All the labor of man is for his mouth You do not work only for what you eat. You also work for what you wear what you live in what you drive Please understand that Solomon is using synecdoche here to get you started that he is talking about the basic needs and desires of life That's why you go to work We have to work to eat. We have to work to wear clothes. We have to work to have shelter. We have to work to have those things. So we have in verse 7, all the labor of man is for his mouth. It's basic necessities and basic desires that drive men to work. And yet the appetite is not filled. Any man, as the next verse is going to tell us, and I am going to be short, As the next verse is going to tell us, any man, poor, wise, rich, or poor, they can all have the basic necessities. What did I say were the basic necessities in the earlier service? Eat, drink, sleep, spouse, the Lord. Any man can afford those things. Your bed might not be quite as luxurious as a rich man's bed, but you wouldn't know the difference. There's no bed like your bed, is there? Isn't that a wonderful thing? There's no bed like your bed. Now, you might be able to help your bed be a better bed by getting a better mattress for it. Oh, that's a hard lesson, too. Don't buy used mattresses and box springs. Get yourself a good mattress and box springs. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Amen. Sherry and I, we have a 10-year-old box springs and mattress, and we were told where to go and what to buy by a couple in this church, Red and Sherry. We still get in that thing after 10 years and we just stretch. And we're grinning in the dark. We have the best bed in the whole world. Almost every night. Then somebody came along and told me about thread count sheets. Are you kidding? I thought that leftover sandpaper was for bed sheets. No. I thought if you could buy a bed sheet that had 50 thread count or 100 thread count because it was only $2.99. For a set? That, that I was utilitarian. Yes. It'll defoliate me while I'm lying between these sheets. Oh, it was terrible. You know, that's somebody that shops. You go and you buy the cheapest set of sheets. I'm not talking about wasting money. I'm talking about sleeping well. Then somebody told me there's a 400-count, 400 400-thread-count 400 sheet. Whoa. What is this, Sherry? I feel like uh, we're on a romantic retreat. It's slippery in here. Then, it, then you go up to 600 thread count sheets. And it's luxurious. For a few dollars more. Right. Stop being utilitarian. Enjoy life and, and love it. We, almost every night we grab hands. We do. Uh, anyway. We grab hands and we just spread ourselves under those sheets and thank the Lord. For the great things He's given us. You'll get up better. You'll sleep better. For the good box springs and mattress. Thank you, Lord. for We have them in this country. Thank you, Lord. The simple things of life. All of labor is for His mouth. Now you understand that it's not just food that's considered here. It's clothing. It's shelter. And it's the things of life drive men to work. But guess what? The appetite is never filled. Men do not stop and be content with having those basic needs met. They want to keep working for more. They start getting outside the list of necessities. Do you know why Paul... Think about how Paul in 1 Timothy 6 proves that what Solomon preached in Ecclesiastes was true. He said, having having food and raiment to be content. Do you know what the world wants us to do? It keeps, it keeps driving us this bigger and bigger house. More and more square footage. Bigger and bigger car. More cars. More gr- You know, when I grew up, there was only one kind of a garage. How many car garage was it? One. Now you go into Spalding Farm or you go into Kingsbridge or Kilgore Plantation, it's four, six car garages. It's ridiculous. You know how many children are in those houses on average? One. They thought we were running an orphanage in Spalding Farm. They did. They'd see all the kids out in the yard and they'd stop by and say, we thought that was an orphanage. Because there were so many kids playing in the yard. When all of them had their cars, that looked like a used car lot. And none of them belonged in Spalding Farm. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. Solomon's teaching us about contentment. There are basic necessities that drive men to work, and yet men aren't content with those things. How many come from my generation that heard a, a raspy-voiced wild man saying, I can't get no satisfaction? You know, that's how the world thinks. And the Lord is teaching us by wisdom here through Solomon. Boy, there's not very many as old as me, huh? You should, I can't get no satisfaction. Mick Jagger, Rolling Stones, 1960s. But the Lord teaches us how to be satisfied. He's put gladness in my heart more than when their wine and oil increase. But one of the rules is, men live and work for their mouths, for their backs, and for their shelter, and yet the appetite is not filled. They are not content. When they get to that, they want more. Then they want more. They watch the advertising that pounds us every day, the neighbors that pound us by what they get. We shouldn't be moved by any of those things. We should enjoy the life God's given us. Enjoy the simple basics that He's given us and be content with them. If the Lord gives us riches, don't set your heart on them. Just use them. For what hath the wise more than the fool? What does a wise man have more than a fool when it comes to what he puts in his mouth, what he wears in his back, what he sleeps in at night, the table that he eats his food from? What does the wise man have more than the fool? He doesn't have anything. There is no difference between the wise man and the fool based on the mouth, based on clothing. You say, well, a, a, you know, a wise man with natural wisdom, no, he wears clothes. You know, his, his pants have two legs. What hath the wise more than the fool? If we would be content with what drives us to labor instead of wanting more. There's no difference between the two. Even a fool can eat, sleep, and enjoy the basic necessities of life because God has made it so easy to have them, especially in our nation. What hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? Here's a poor man. He does not have much in the way of money, financial power, the ability to buy things, but he knows how to walk before the living. That means he is relatively wise and prudent in the discharge of his affairs. He works hard. He's careful. He knows how to walk before the living. And he's, he's content. This is he knows how to walk before the living. It's all included in that. What does he have? He has as much as a rich man. I've asked you before. How, many, how big is, does your bed need to be for you to sleep well? Does Bill Gates need or does he have a bigger bed than you have? How big should the table be that you scrape your food from to put it in your mouth? It doesn't matter, does it? How big should your house be to be happy? You can only be in one room at a time. Who needs Ga- Bill Gates' 55,000 mansion on a lake in Washington? How can he beat PB&J in chocolate milk? Jonathan says it can't be beaten. Peanut butter and jelly and chocolate milk. What do you need to be happy? Yet the appetite is not filled. We we work hard to get clothes, to put gas in the car, to get food, the basic necessities we need of life. And yet the appetite is not filled because there's something driving men and we want to learn not to let that drive us. Because what difference is there between a rich man, poor man, wise man, foolish man? When it comes to these things, they all eat, sleep the same way. What are you working for? So we have the conclusion for this lesson of contentment in verse 9. Better. I love it when Solomon tells me something is better. I'm simple. I love him to say, Jonathan, here's two things, and this thing is better than this thing. That, that's how deep I think. I love it when he makes it simple. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. What's the vanity and vexation of spirit? It's the wandering of the desire so that you are not content with the things God gives you, even the basics that every man can have. The wandering of the desire. Better is the sight of the eyes. Do you know how you make your wife prettier? And every woman lives with some measure of insecurity because of the obsession and the the media in our generation of promoting pictures of freaks of nature that have been modified by surgery and dressed up by photography about their bodies do you know how you make your wife prettier choose to be content with the sight of your eyes rather than the wandering of your desire do you know how you make your house better choose to be content with the sight of your eyes than to want, let your desire wander about what would it be like To be living in something twice this big. Better is the sight of the eyes. That's what God's given you. This is a lesson in contentment. Contentment is learned behavior. It's a choice. Paul said, I have learned. In whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. When I am full, I can be hungry. When I am hungry, I can be full. I can be a base I can be happy in any situation because I've chosen to be content. Hebrews 13:5 says, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. Now there's a spiritual explanation there for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Because if you've got God, anything should make you happy completely. Amen. He's put gladness in my heart more than when their corn of wine increase. What's God given you? Look at it and be thankful for it. Silver's not going to satisfy you. If you love silver, an increase in silver, if you love abundance, an increase in abundance is not going to satisfy you. If you can learn that lesson right now, then be happy with copper. Right. If silver won't make you happy, then be happy with copper. If what you see in your life is copper, I'm using it as a metaphor, then be content with it. The wandering of the desire is covetous thoughts and fantasies for things you don't have. The world sells it to you all the time. They tell you it's just fine. They never talk about sins of the heart. You can make your wife pretty just by choosing to be content with her. It's the sight of your eyes, it's the one God's given you. And by the way, you chose her anyway. You say, well, mine's over, I've been married to mine for over 10 years and she's starting to wear out. You wore out. It's the sight of the eyes. Listen to me for a f- every second that you think about things you do not have, but that you want to have, you lose that second of joy and satisfaction from the things you do have that God gave you. E- think about it. Amen. Life is too short to waste seconds. If you spend one second thinking about something you don't have, you're losing that second with what you do have. Every second you think about something you don't have and you want it, you degrade the value and the pleasure of what you do have by comparing it to a fantasy. God's given you reality. That's why it's called the sight of the eyes, rather than the wandering of the desire. Because if you were to watch a little bit more television, your desire would wander a little bit further. It never stops wandering. Because it's never going to find anything to make it happy. If you think for one second about what you don't have and you want it to be different and you're frustrated and discontent with what you have, you waste limited energy and time in a direction that can never provide satisfaction. It will never fulfill you. You frustrate yourself into a madman like Amnon, craving something you cannot have. You deceive yourself by idealizing what you don't have by your ignorance about it. You do not know. That another man would be better than the husband you have. You do not know that another wife would be better than the wife you have. You do not know that. Right. That is a lie, that is a fantasy that is idealizing something for the lust of your flesh and the pride of life based on a fantasy that you've created. The sight of the eyes is better than the wandering of the desire. Yes. Life is short. We cannot waste it thinking about what we don't have, thinking that that would make us better and happier. You're fools if you do that. Don't do it. Don't let me do it. I love it when he says better. I can take two things and compare them, I think. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. If you think about something God did not give you, and wish you had it, rather than the thing that God did give you, you're fretting against the Lord. You're grieving the Holy Spirit. You're denying that His providence is good. You're saying He's not a good Father. The house you live in, you picked it. The car you're driving, you picked it. God gave it. It's the sight of your eyes. What a book of philosophy. What I'm telling you right now is a secret for life. I have as active of an imagination as anyone sitting in here. And that imagination is a curse most of the time. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of your imagination, Jonathan. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. We work so hard, all the labor of man is for his mouth, yet the appetite is not filled. He gets his basic necessities supplied and provided, and on he goes wanting more. You know, in this world today, they want a new wife. They want a new woman. They want a new husband. They want a new this. They want a new that. They're never satisfied. They end up with such dysfunctional lives, unhappy lives, disillusioned lives, depressed lives, because they did not learn contentment. Verse 10, the last lesson in this chapter. Human life is hopeless. (laughs) Without learning some wisdom and without the God of heaven. Verse 10, that which hath been is named already, and it is known that it is man. Neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? For who knoweth what is good for man in this life? All the days of his vain life, which he spendeth as a shadow. For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? This is the middle of the book of Ecclesiastes. At this point, Solomon draws a conclusion and doesn't give you the answer. He gives you the answer in 12, 13, and 14. He, he doesn't give you the answer right here. He leaves you hanging. Because in verse 1 of chapter 7 and then to the end of the book, he's going to teach wisdom about how to make something out of life by the wisdom of God given to Solomon. And, of course, we can add to that our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and spiritual blessings galore in heaven. Right. But that's what these last, these last three verses are a summary that leaves no answer but leaves us hopeless. Human existence is hopeless without an answer. And no man can find that answer except by revelation. Amen. We do not believe in rationalization. We believe in revelation. Yes. We have to have God tell us yes. what the purpose for life is because we cannot figure it out. Amen. That which hath been is named already. You think about any man... Or any accomplishment by man, it's already been named in this book, and it's been called vanity and vexation of spirit, and that thing is man. Human life. Here's the, here is what he's trying to communicate to you in sometimes somewhat obscure language. Human existence is hopeless. Human existence is vanity. Man's been already named. One generation comes, think about what we've learned so far. One generation comes, another generation goes. It's in a cycle of vanity. It never gets better. The waters run into the sea. The waters evaporate into the clouds. The clouds move over the mountains. The water falls out of the clouds, runs down the mountains, back into the sea. Nothing improves, nothing changes. There's nothing new under the sun. That which hath been has been named, and it is man. Human existence is hopeless. Because that's what Solomon has pounded from the very beginning of this book. All is vanity. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which hath been is named already, and it is known that it is man. Solomon has already taught us. He is summarizing his lesson to this point. Six chapters. Because he's going to say, seeing there be many things that increase vanity, in verse 11, where do we see those things? Seeing there be many things that increase vanity in the six chapters of Ecclesiastes. He's led led us through them. That all the things men can try to, to try to find profit and value for life is vanity. That which hath been is named already, and it is known that it is man. Human existence is vain and vexing. All is vanity. There is no hope. There is no hope. There is no prophet. Who can tell man what his prophet is, as he's going to ask here? There's no one. It's been named. Everything that man can accomplish, I've tried it, he said. It's, it's human effort. Human effort amounts to nothing. Neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. This situation that man is in, he brought it upon himself. Chapter 7, verse 29 is going to tell us that. God hath made man upright, but he sought out many inventions. He brought it upon himself. But he cannot contend with God that is mightier than he. It is God's providence that has put us in this world. It is God's providence that either gives it a, a time to gain or a time to lose. A time to war or a time for peace. That is all in the hands of God. He is the potter and we are the clay. If you don't like your situation in life, you cannot contend about it with your maker. Because God is mightier than you, and He has already made those decisions for you. You cannot change things. You cannot make straight what He has made crooked. Try to think of what, the, what this book has told you so far. There is no prophet. It's full of travail, and then we die. If you were to look at man, that which hath been is named already, and it is man. What does man look like? He looks like the beast. He lives and dies like beasts. There isn't a man that can look at a man and see his spirit go up and the spirit of beasts go down. We only know that by revelation. And this hopeless situation we're in, we cannot contend about it. It's still better than we deserve. And God is not going to change it unless he chooses to change it for his own good pleasure. That which hath been is named already. Everything that Solomon has written, everything that Solomon had seen, everything that Solomon had tried... Any man that you could raise from history that led up to Solomon, any accomplishment, whether it was the Tower of Babel or anything else, it's been named already and it is man. Human life, man's efforts, man's accomplishments, man's generations amount to nothing. And he cannot contend with his maker who has put him in this predicament and situation. And why did God put us in this situation? He has put us in this situation. I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. Everything is vanity. Human existence is hopeless. And he cannot contend with God and say it's not fair. It's fair. Chapter 6 and verse 11. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? All the things that I have tried, all the things that I've observed in the first six chapters of Ecclesiastes, does it make man better? Not at all. Not at all. He's talked about riches being a curse, about accumulating being a problem, about having children and dying and giving your inheritance to them and not knowing how they're going to live it. You in wisdom could have acquired it. They in foolishness could spend it. He goes on and on. Wisdom. Wisdom leads to grief and sorrow. Chapter 1, the last two verses. He describes all these things, seeing there be many things that increase vanity. What is man the better? Is there anything under heaven? Is there anything from generations past, the present, or the future that give man any purpose? The answer is no at this point. For who knoweth what is good for man in this life, all the days of his vain life, which he spendeth as a shadow? For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? Man does not know when he's leaving this world, who's going to get what he had that he left in this world, how that person's going to use what he had, whether to his own hurt or to his advantage, to the hurt of others or to their advantage. It is not known except by revelation. We have a man called the preacher, he was the son of David, he was the king in Jerusalem over all of Israel. And God inspired him to write to us the answer to these questions that no man can answer. He has already shown us that that which hath been is named already. It is already classified as a futile experiment in trying to find profit because it's men. Man has nothing. There is no purpose for man. It is travail that God has put us under to exercise us to turn to God. It leaves us frustrated. But there is an answer. and We've had the answer. We've had hints at the answer. We've been shown that natural wisdom says to enjoy life day by day as you can for that number of days that God gives you. And you cannot contend with God who is mightier than you. Do you remember back in chapter 3 where it says, What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? Because it's God that sets the time to be born and the time to die. You might make your plans ever so well and then it's God's time for you to die human existence is futile and vain and you cannot argue with god about it seeing there be many things that increase vanity what is man the better think about what the wise man is saying man by his nature is vanity man since adam is vanity to get bread out of the ground he was going to have to do it by the sweat of his brow the ground was going to be cursed with thorns Man was vain from the day he ate of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good good and evil. Then, he adds to his vanity by trying to find profit in things in this life. And they only complicate his life rather than helping him find profit. He is vain. Man is vain. And everything that has been has been named and classified here as vanity. And we can't argue about it Our condition as the human species is vanity. Then we try to find a solution for life in verse 11. And Solomon says, all these things that I've just shown you, what does it say? They increase vanity. We go from bad to worse. What is man the better? What have I shown you in six chapters that really provides profit? Now, he's taught us how to enjoy life. But here he's just reducing us. See, at the end of the book, he's going to talk about death and dying. and He's going to come to the conclusion. He's going to say, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. He doesn't give us this part of the conclusion here. He's going to start right up in verse 1 of chapter 7 with positive instruction of wisdom on how we ought to live. How can you make your life more than an ordinary man's life or a futile, wasted life? Starts right off in chapter 7. What does it say? A good name is better than precious ointment. This is a dividing point in the book of of Ecclesiastes, and he's drawing a conclusion. Everything I've shown you, everything I've tried, everything, everything that everyone else has tried is vain. All that is man. This is philosophy, the study of man, the study of the purpose of man, the study of man's life is vain. And then when man tries to extricate himself from this dilemma, he makes things worse. Because look at all the things I've tried, and it did not bring me profit or purpose, it brought me vexation of spirit. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? For who knoweth what is good for man in this life? Who knows it? No man knows it by natural revelation. He's leaving you, he's leaving you at this point realizing that from a natural standpoint, we do not know what our purpose is. Who knoweth what is good for man in this life? All the days of his vain life, that's human life, that he's just been talking about, which he spendeth as a shadow. A shadow goes so quickly. A shadow has no reality. A shadow has no substance. And a man's life is like a shadow. It is here and then gone. It has no substance. We're like grass that grows up. You know all the other expressions in the Bible. Life is so, so short. We're like a tale that is told. Who knoweth what is good for man in this life? All the days of his vain life which he spendeth as a shadow. For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? What's going to happen with his estate? What's going to happen with his family? Who can tell a man the future? Who can tell a man what's going to take place after death? This is under the sun. This is not above the sun. This is under the sun. No one can. It's all by revelation. So let us cheat and go to the conclusion right now. What is the answer to verses 10, 11, and 12? Let us hear the conclusion to the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God... Oh, we're going to get some new revelation. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Last two verses of the book. You say, I wish he would give us more in the middle. He's given you great stuff in the middle. He's just drawing a conclusion, and as soon as we dive into chapter 7, what's it going to say in 7-2? Is he going to start teaching you wisdom on how to live, on how to make, how to get some value out of life? He's going to tell you that mourning is better than, than celebrating. Right. That a funeral is better than a birthday party. He's going to tell you that. And we're going to work forward, and we'll come to the conclusion. I hope this has been helpful. I hope that chapter 6, you understand it. Please understand it, and let's apply it. There is an evil, it's an evil disease, it's common among men, where riches are kept to the herd of the owners. No matter how long a man might live, nor how many children he might have, if he does not choose to enjoy the good of his labor, a stillborn is better than he is. Contentment is a choice. Better is the sight of your eyes than the wandering of your desire. Do not let your desire wander to other women. Do not let your desire wander to other houses, jobs, jobs. What has God given you that you can look upon that he's put right in front of you? Use it. If God gives you something else to use better, take it. But until then, don't be discontent. Life is too short to be discontent. And the whole state of man, everything that's been named in this book so far, in life, you can check it out anywhere. A good statement is, the best of men are but men. That's verse 10. The best of men are but men. Everything that has been named, and it is man, everything that is human, is vain and vexing. And every time they try to find an improvement for life, they make it worse. So there's got to be help for us. And that help has been hinted at in the first six chapters, and that help will be elaborated on as we go through the second six chapters. Let us fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man, and it is the conclusion of the whole matter. It settles the whole thing. Fear God and keep his commandments. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.